Again, it's good to see you this morning. I'd like to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9, which is page 260 in your pew Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 9. In the ESV version, they've added uh, titles for various sections or chapters in the various books of the Bible, and uh, the ESV's um, heading for chapter 9 says, David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Let's read it together prayerfully and alertly. Chapter 8, David has just had a number of victories over his enemies. Scripture says that he was He was administering justice. He was administering equity to all his people. Things are going extremely well. And chapter 9, verse 1 begins, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? As you know, David and Jonathan were dear friends, brothers. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and They called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not someone still of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for them and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at the Lord's table, at David's table rather, like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And now he was lame in both of his feet. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I have to say this is a a most uh, remarkable story as you read through the first and second books of Samuel because here this entire chapter focuses on on King David's interest in in one individual, someone he doesn't even know, or in fact, he doesn't even know if that individual exists. 
In verse 1, he asks, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And David's advisors don't know. But they do know that Saul's servant, Ziba, still lived. And if anyone were to know if there were any remaining relatives of Saul, sons, grandsons of Saul, um, it, that, that Ziba would, would, would probably know. So they bring Ziba in front of the king. And David asks, is there, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? So here we have King David, and he's, he's on the search. He's on a search to find the descendant of Saul, his enemy, in order to show him the kindness of God. Or to use another uh, translation, to demonstrate God's steadfast love to him or God's own covenant faithfulness to him. And I think that is why our author devotes so much attention, an entire chapter, to the story of a king's concern over one individual. David had made a covenant with Jonathan. His reference here to Jonathan, that he would never... Um, that he would never kill Jonathan's offspring or seed. He'd also made a covenant with Saul that he would not do that. In fact, Saul, David's enemy, had said toward the end of his life when he realized it was inevitable, it was God's will that David would be king, that his own house, his own monarchy, his own dynasty would be set aside. That refers to Saul. Saul said, swear to me, therefore, before the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David had made that promise not to kill, not to destroy Saul's offspring. But what you have here, I think a number of commentaries actually miss this, but what you have here, years later, is David going far beyond what he had promised. Far beyond the covenant commitment that he had made to Saul or to Jonathan. He had promised not to harm them. He had promised not to kill the descendants, not to wipe out the name, the family of Saul forever. That was his promise. But here, he is seeking to extend God's mercy and God's kindness to that house. And so he asks Ziba, and Ziba says, well, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Now, what does that mean, that Ziba would say that? What that means is he's saying, there's still a son of Jonathan, but he's not what you're looking for. You really don't want him. Kings didn't associate with deformed people. They didn't bother themselves with the lame, good-for-nothing humanity. In Daniel chapter 1, if you remember back uh, to that chapter, it occurred in the future of Israel's history compared with our present frame of reference. But you remember, after King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, had de destroyed Judah, brought prisoners to Babylon, he ordered his chief eunuch, Ashpenaz, to go bring members of the royal family of Judah into his house, into his courts, but there were specifics, there were specifications for who that could be. Not just any member of the royal family, but youths without blemish, of good appearance, 
skillful in wisdom. The list goes on and on, etc., etc., etc. Competent to stand in the king's palace. That's who is allowed to stand before a king. David couldn't be concerned for such a lame man, but he was. That's the point. That's what's so astonishing here. David really was concerned. Where is he, he asked. And the response came in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. You know, Lodabar, lo means not. Dabar means word. Lodabar was the town of no word. And it's at this point then that the author introduces us to the name of this son of Jonathan. His name was Mephibosheth. And inherent in that name is the word for, for shame. So here is this lame man from a defeated family living in shame and in self-imposed exile. Self-imposed isolation. And David wants him. And so when he's brought before the king, David wastes no time really transforming his life. David says to him three things that are absolutely transformational for this man. In verse 7. And each one of those is more amazing than the thing before. The first thing he says to Mephibosheth is, do not fear. Now, let's not rush over that. He said, do not fear. Mephibosheth was a direct descendant of the king's enemy. He was the heir to Saul's throne. He was a potential threat to David and certainly to his offspring as far as who would reign in Israel in the future. And if you say, well, he wasn't likely a threat, come on. No, he really was. And if you continue to read 2 Samuel, particularly chapters 16, 19, and 21, you will learn that it was entirely possible that Mephibosheth was not loyal to David. And yet David, even suspecting the worst about him, kept protecting him. And at one point in chapter 21, finally, saves his life one more time. Keeps him from being killed one more time. It's amazing. David said, do not fear. And then he said to him, secondly, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. Oh, my heaven. By the way, fathers, grandfathers were often called fathers as long as they were offspring. So he said, I will restore the land of Saul, your father. And that is such amazing extravagance, isn't it? Think about that. All the dead king's holdings, they were immense. I mean, he was, he was a king. Houses and barns and livestock, acreage, fields rippling with grain, fine orchards, well-tended groves, all of it, all of it, the king gave to Jonathan. Extravagant. But then the third thing he said to Jonathan was over and above all those, way beyond the top. He said, and you shall eat at my table always. You'll be a member of my royal family Jonathan, I'm sorry, Mephibosheth. 
You'll sit with me. We're going to sit together at the same table. We're going to eat together. And I will never cast you from my table. You will be a member of my family. You will be like my son. You will be like my brother. You will eat with me all your life. Not because you have no bread. You have lots of bread. But because I love you. And I'm determined to show you God's kindness. And then David commanded Ziba and all of his family, his children, and all of his servants to till that land that had belonged to Saul, not of Mephibosheth, because Mephibosheth wouldn't be able to do that, and bring the produce to him. And yet even when he commands that, yet a second time he concludes, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And then we're told that Ziba did obey, and we're told that Mephibosheth did eat at David's table. And then the story closes out, and the author in verse 13 comes to the conclusion, and the conclusion reads, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now that is four times we're told he ate, would eat, did eat at the king's table table. But that's not the end of verse 13. It says he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Can you see this this contrast, the tension, the discrepancy, this huge gap between this lame man and this great king? Between the Poverty, the oblivious nature, there's the shame of the downcast and the power and the honor and the prominence of the king. It's a huge gap. It is absolutely a huge gap. And our author underscores it. And yet David closes that gap entirely. Entirely. How? By demonstrating the loving kindness, the steadfast love, the covenant faithfulness, the ever-present mercy of God to him. This story is highlighted to show us God's kindness and his saving mercy. And toward us, it is. I mean, he comes to us. He casts aside in Christ our fear He casts aside our shame. He raises us, he raises us up. He gives us a heritage. He gives us a future. He gives us a hope. And it isn't apart from him, it is close to him. He takes us to himself. So we dwell together. We will dwell together forever. He says to us, I will remove your fear. He says to us, I will provide abundantly with you, for you. And he says to us, now you come and you be with me. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. This was David at his best. This was David, the righteous king. And in the David depicted here, at the pinnacle of his righteousness, do we not see Christ in the Old Testament? 
In two chapters, David will go ahead. He, I mean, he will stumble. He will fall. But God's promise to raise up a far greater son of David remained. And in this chapter, we come as close in the life of David as we can to see a glimpse, that a foretaste, a foreshadowing of Christ. You know, when Jesus came and taught, and when his apostles after him wrote about this promise of everlasting life, he cast it, they cast it again and again in terms of a banquet, in terms of a feast in which we will eat with Christ. He will be at our table. We will be, excuse me, at his table because he's the host. He is the king. And he would have it no other way. It's amazing. Members of his family, so well loved and so well cared for, so filled with the knowledge of how much God loves us. And this image of, of eternal life is, is a feast. It's, it, isn't, it doesn't spring from the New Testament. It's grounded in the Old Testament. In fact, the bell choir today sang, based on Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 25, about the coming peace of God, that in the mountain of the Lord, Isaiah 25 says, there will be a feast, a banquet laid out for all the nations. And the shroud that has covered all humanity will be removed. Death, it will be gone. It'll have the finest wine. It'll be the best kind of celebration. And what's astonishing about this, and I I will return to it and underscore it later, but I'll underscore it now. This depiction of eternal life as a feast is not the depiction of an event. It is the depiction of your state of being forever with God. That's what it is. In our human experience, this, I think, is what raises, or what is, you know, this is most like, what eternal life will be for us. No fear, well provided, abundantly cared for, and with God. Now, how do we know that this promise is sure? How do we know that in Christ taught the parable, the wedding feast. The wedding analogy for feast is often used as part of that. How do we know that it is sure? How do we know how serious the promise is for us? And the answer is, by the extent to which Christ suffered to secure that promise for us. The love required of God to be so gracious and merciful to us is to provide us with this future, this great gift. Amazing. The love that's required of God to do that was displayed in Christ on the cross. The assurance that we will ascend is grounded in the fact that Christ did descend to such a depth as to become sin for us. 
We have not seen the height of God's love. But he has shown us the depth of his love. And he's confirmed to us that there's so much more for us to see and know of his love and his mercy by raising Christ from the dead. And it was Jesus himself who brought together these notions of the, of the feast with his suffering at the Last Supper. When he told his apostles that the Passover bread was his body and that the Passover wine was his shed blood for the forgiveness of many. After doing that, he declared, as Matthew tells us, I tell you again, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What you have here is a guarantee of what you will know later. And what you have here is my body broken for you. What you have here is my blood shed for you. Do not think we will not sit together at a banquet. I have such a banquet in store for you. I think of Luke 16. I think of the parable or the story of Lazarus. Remember the lame man? who sat outside the rich man's gate begging for food while the rich man just had all the banqueting that he could possibly stand. And then Lazarus dies and he goes and he is, the Bible says, in or against Abraham's bosom. What does that mean? That is the language of a banquet. That is the language of one person leaning into another as they're all eating together and enjoying each other just as, just as uh, John, the apostle, leaned against Christ. At the Last Supper. It is, it is a banquet. In Luke 22, and Jesus, as Luke tells us all the account of the Lord's Supper, he tells us Jesus said to his apostles, you know, you will sit with me and eat with me at my table. In the royal heaven, the royal feast of heaven, Christ is the king and he's the host. And how, think with me for a moment, how does Jesus describe in his parables those who will sit with him there? He describes them in Luke 14 as the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Every human being shares a deformity. If only the problem were that I had a defect and that you had a defect, that's not the problem. Every human being shares a deformity. And what, what we share is a deformed humanity. And we know this deformed humanity, that our humanity is deformed by the way it affects us. If I go to a doctor and I cannot use my hand, though I want my hand to work, there is a problem. If I cannot hear, though I strain to hear, there is a problem. If I cannot walk, 
If I'm lame, although my brain sends signals, I'm saying, walk, walk, and I cannot walk. There is a problem. Paul put it this way. This is how he described deformed humanity. He said in Romans 7, I do not understand my actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the capacity to carry it out. I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he uses the most striking analogy of physical disability. He says, I see in my members a law waging war against the law of my mind and having its way. I can't make my hands do what I want them to do. I can't make my feet or my legs or my arm. They're not doing what I want them to do. That's what Paul is saying. Only, of course, it's not physical disability, but it is the disabling of our conscience from our will that Paul is talking about. He's talking about how the testimony of God's righteousness, which is within us, which we cannot shake off because it is real, how that testimony of God's righteousness does not transmit so that we can put it into practice in our lives because we do not want to. Somehow that transmission has been cut off. Somehow that that transmission runs into great resistance. There's a problem with the system. Ours is a deformed humanity. And though we can live much of our lives on what I would call a fairly superficial level, and I don't mean that pejoratively, you know, on a level of just getting through the day, we can live our lives that way and never really reflect on the nature of our experience, our inner experience as human beings. But it's the same for every one of us, for every one of you in the room. No matter where you come from, no matter what the color of your skin, no matter how old or young you are, no matter what you believe, this is reality. Is it a deformed humanity? And it's common to us all. Don't feel personally insulted, please. When Mephibosheth heard from David what the kindness of God, God's king actually meant to him, he responded, What is your servant that you should show regard to a dead dog such as I? You know, to this day, across northern Africa, the Middle East, and into Asia, dogs are worthless. They are unclean. They are filthy. They're considered to be carriers of of vermin and contagious. And of course, they're untrustworthy. They slink around the streets, their tail between their legs, begging and stealing, snarling and snapping. You know, one morning last October, when I was in Lahore, Pakistan, got out and I left the hotel and there were a couple dogs and, and out there, wild dogs, street dogs and one of them approached me he looked awfully pitiful 
he wagged his tail. As he wagging his tail, I began to respond and kind of talk to him, kind of lean toward him a little bit. The hotel guard who was right there simply stepped up to the dog and kicked that dog as hard as he could and laughed. And I had to say, I, I was upset. I looked at him. I gave him one of those evil eyes. But he also had the rifle. But I was, I was thinking to myself, if Tibby were here, he'd chew his leg. <laughs> and I'd hold it. No. Dogs are worth, Tibby is my dog, for those of you who don't know. A dog is worth nothing. And of course, all the more a dead dog, whose rotting carcass just lays in the street until the night comes and then gets, has its flesh picked clean. This was Mephibosheth's point in referring to himself as a dead dog. He was not saying, I have bad feelings about myself, I need therapy. He was talking about how unworthy he was of the Lord's loving of the king's kindness to him. Who am I that you should do this for me? It was like David in chapter 9, two chapters earlier after Nathan prophesies and, and establishes, reveals God's covenant with David to have an eternal kingdom. That was exactly David's response. Who am I, O Lord God? It's like the Apostle Paul's confession, his declaration when he's talking about the extravagance of God's grace to Timothy. And he says, and I am the chief of sinners. Who am I? Ours is so great a salvation in Christ. And it's conveyed in this image, this powerful image throughout the scriptures of feasts where we sit at the same table with Christ. We eat with him. Because he wants us to be near him. And Jesus literally did this. So we know that this life, what we experience here in this world, it is a pale copy. It is a, it is a film compared with the substance and the reality of eternal life. So don't think that heaven is going to be less than this grand feast. The greatest thing you can experience is going to be far more. And it's not an event. It's a forever. By virtue of our own deformed humanity, apart from Christ, the true king, we are all Mephibosheth, connected with shame and living in Lod the Bar, where we hear no word, where there's no word and we're nothing. But then God, like David, calls us. He comes after us. He draws us out of our unbelief and our reluctance to himself. And how does he do that? Very profoundly. It really is centered on the cross of Christ. On what Jesus endured for us on the cross and dying for our sin. Because as he hung and endured the shame of the cross, the shame he endured... For our sin has a way of stirring us up also to be honest 
and to recognize the shame within ourselves. Yes, ours is a deformed humanity. And we have a deep need for a Savior. And in the same way, back to the cross, the cross stirs us up also to see something else. And a far more wonderful truth for sure, that God's loving kindness and his offer of mercy is infinitely greater than what we could need or what we could imagine. Which is not to reduce our understanding of our responsibility, but is to heighten our understanding of the greatness and the goodness of Almighty God. And this elevation, this being lifted up, is not at all dependent on your worthiness. It's entirely dependent on God himself. Just as David's actions were entirely dependent upon David himself, not on Jonathan in that point of comparison. I mean, God has uniquely come to us in Christ, that promised son of David. He has come to us in the form of one who is our king. And it is for us to accept and entrust ourselves entirely into his care because of who he is. And he promises. And it is true for all those who believe in him. They come to know that it is true by the Holy Spirit, not perfectly in this life, but persistently in this life by the work of the Holy Spirit. Your shame has been removed. Your God will provide for you more abundantly than you can imagine. And you will be with him forever. Such is the loving kindness and grace of Almighty God in the face of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and thank you so much for this portion of your word. And we ask you, please, to apply it to our hearts. I, I think I, I would have passed out if I'd been Mephibosheth. I don't know what I would have done. I would have been struck, silent, I mean, speechless. Yet, Father, here I am today praying to you. And thanking you for the true and everlasting king you've given to reign over me, Christ. And how he has worked in my life. And I'm praying this way. Many others are saying the same thing. How you have worked in my life and shown yourself faithful and merciful and true. And I pray that you'd help everyone here. I think especially of those who do not know you, who've not really come to a living faith in Christ, to see in the cross the reality and the necessity of shame and sin atoned for, their own shame, and the reality and the goodness of your almighty love for us. So we do not live and load the bar. We do not try to keep ourselves in isolation, in silence from your word, from who you are, from others, to let them know who we are. No, but we come, we come to Christ. And I ask this for your glory. Amen.